Welcome to the great conversation where ideas matter, ideas shape markets, ideas can change the world. Um, I've had a very interesting career, um, mostly in business uh, as a entrepreneur and intrapreneur. Uh, and um, as most of you know, in the course of that business career, I became a consultant to CEOs to help them build valuable companies. And it was slightly after 9-11 where the CEO of a security organization approached me and said, my market is changing, my company's changing. I need help with that change process. I need a strategy for the future. And that's how I got introduced into the risk, resilience, and security industry. And what did I find there? Servant leaders from uh, law enforcement, from the military, from agencies, uh, many of them who had pursued corporate careers and yet had no business training at all. And uh, so I uh, started the Great Conversation as a physical event as a result of running into these servant leaders because I thought I thought my business background could intersect with their greatest need, understanding their industry and how it intersects with the value of business. And that's how I started the Great Conversation. Many of you don't know that. So I always get turned on when I meet people who also have a circuitous path, um, path to uh, the risk resilience security industry, just like mine. And here I run into this guy who was an educator and suddenly became a police officer. And now, based on the articles I've been reading, seems to be reinventing approach to police work as chief of police of Lewis University. And I have Mike Zagadlo on the fine. Did, did I pronounce that name right? That was close enough. I say Zagadlo, but I'll, I'll accept Zagadlo. Zagadlo. Is that Italian? It's a poorly Americanized Polish name. <laughs> <laughs> well, welcome, Mike. It's great to have you on the great conversation. Thanks for having me. I, uh, uh, let's just start right in with that, that lead in, because, and I want everyone to hold on because the whole crux of this great conversation will be what he's found from his uh, uh, study of police work and how he's applying change to that profession in his current role. But how did you become a policeman? Well, it, it was sort of a strange path for me. I, as you mentioned, I started out in education. I was a college administrator uh, and I, I did that for 10 years. I worked my way up to being an assistant dean at a private college in Illinois. And uh, one of the departments that I supervised in that role as, a, as an assistant dean was their public safety department. And I, operationally, I didn't really know anything about it and wanted to learn because I didn't want to supervise a department that I you know, really didn't have any operational knowledge of. And so as I began to kind of develop more knowledge about public safety and law enforcement, I got intrigued by it. And, you know, I grew up on the South side of Chicago. So I had a perception of law enforcement that was different than what I experienced out in the Western suburbs of Illinois. It's a completely different culture of law enforcement. And as I kind of began to meet people in law enforcement who were progressive and modern and uh, focused on community policing and problem-oriented policing, who were better educated, good communicators, programmers, uh, I, I really became intrigued and, and thought this career might be a good fit for me. And so I, I kind of dipped my toe in the water. I applied to be a part-time park 
Park District police officer in a big city in Illinois. And I did that for about a year and really liked it and went back and had a tough conversation with my wife about changing careers from education and, and jumping into law enforcement and basically hit the reset button on my career and started all over as a line level frontline patrol officer in a large municipality in Illinois. Well, you know, what's intriguing though, let's, let's just pull it all together here. You basically as an educator have approached police work with an educator mindset. You're still learning and teaching. Yeah. I, you know, it's funny because one of the, one of the first role, you know, you start out as a patrol office. I was a midnight shift patrol guy pushing a squad car around the, around the city, but then you get these opportunities for collateral assignments and you can kind of branch out. And one of the first things that started to intrigue me was to be an instructor. And because I had the education, the background in education, and I was able to kind of tie that in. So very early on in my police career, you know, just out of probation, I became a firearms instructor, use of force instructor, and I was able to kind of parlay my educational skills into, into helping to develop the law enforcement community. You know, there, there's, there's kind of a generational change in law enforcement now as we, we move into this more, you know, there's this, this call for, uh, kind of police reform. And I, and I think, you know, people get nervous about that term because it sounds like we're not doing good old fashioned police work. We still are, but we, we need to approach it differently and being able to kind of integrate concepts like principles of adult learning and, and, and leadership theory into our, into our existing base of law enforcement concepts really gives us an opportunity to push that reform uh, while bringing along all of our great tradition and capability and um, and achievement from the past, but being able to kind of modernize the the industry in unique ways. I, uh, I'm so glad you touched on that, because when I first entered the industry, as I said at the beginning of this broadcast, um, it was a community that was doing what it had always been taught to do. Guns, gates, and guards very defensive in its approach and uh, not using the uh, language of business in their value proposition for what they did. So they often complain leaders in um, the security field would complain they didn't have a seat at the table. They just didn't have a seat at the table because they hadn't learned the new language or the new skills or the new processes that would contribute to that value. So when you bring up adult learning and leadership theory, instead of reform, meaning we're not going to let cops kill people anymore or shoot people or yell at people. Instead, we're going to give them a value proposition that'll be additive to their careers and the community. That's how I'm hearing it. Am I hearing it right? Yeah, absolutely correct. You know, we, there, there's, it's a, it's a challenge to move forward because you know you're working in a in a kind of a regimented paramilitary structure that's rooted in tradition and rooted in a in a kind of a hard way of looking at things but uh, but being able to integrate for instance the desire to have a positive relationship with your community and understand how to communicate with your community and uh and develop linkages with community leaders and and recognizing that that you know, you, you can put it in cop terms and say that's just tactically sound uh, to do those kinds of things. That's what's going to help push the industry forward, I think, is 
is your your comment about speaking the language that's that's really important we have to learn a new language or we have to diversify our vocabulary minimally to be able to 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 move the industry forward in a meaningful way I've often said on my broadcast, uh, and this comes from my experience, right? I'm sitting at the table on these executive management teams. And it dawned on me one day that uh, the HR person, the sales guy or woman, the marketing person, the ops person, the supply chain person, they all speak different languages and they all see the company through that prism. And so who, who is going to be the Berlitz guide Who's going to be the interpreter, the United Nations interpreter of all those languages? Well, it's the CEO navigating risk and opportunity. That's what their main job is. And then the translation of all those activities into one language, if you will. And you're doing the same thing. You have your, your customer is the community. That's who your customer is. And learning the language of that community is going to be absolutely critical and what they want for that community, which is usually done in a democratic republic kind of way, <laughs> in a voting rights way, but what do they want? They're your customer, right? And I don't think that's necessarily been the approach in the past. Am I right? No, I don't. I don't think it has, and and I can understand why it hasn't been. But you know, being able to kind of open up minds and as as you know, as we move forward, we're also bringing in a new generation of cops. You know, I'm, I'm hiring cops now that are millennials. And so they have a different, they're coming into our existing law enforcement culture themselves speaking a different language. And so as we train them, they're bringing in ideas that are foreign to some of the, the veteran officers in terms of how we act, how we interface with technology, how we interact with our community. And, and so you know, it, it is, it's a really fluid and dynamic environment. And I think there's some really great opportunities to exploit these changes to, to, you know, to move the, the organization, to move the uh, field forward positively. The other, um, the other thing that struck me when I first met you here is um, I've been working within the protective intelligence community and they've had to change too. They used to collect data put it in Excel spreadsheets, you know, it's sticky notes all around the office, right? And now they're finding ways to mine the data and organize the data and then communicate the data effectively to get in front of, you know, left of bank. So, so that's what's going on right now in this new technology community called protective intelligence that used to be analog, right? And you because you un understand your value proposition to the community, you're going out and essentially teaching the community how to give you the intelligence to prevent bad things from happening, or even themselves the intelligence to keep bad things from happening. How are you doing that? Yeah, and that, you know that's a great analogy. So we, you, we have national threat assessment reports. We have academic uh, studies. We have, you know, 20 years of data on, on workplace violence, active shooter incidents, and it's beautifully cataloged and beautifully uh, uh, arranged and stored, but being able to animate it and bring it in, bring it out to the community in a way that helps people in the community to understand what are the observable behaviors? What are the things that I might see? What are the risk factors? When I, 
the coworker who, sh- who sits in the cubicle next to me, what are the observable behaviors that I might recognize in that coworker that might indicate to me that that person is in distress or maybe in, in need of help, or maybe in a worst case scenario on the pathway to violence and may require some immediate intervention to prevent something bad from happening in, in my community. So being able to take that stuff off the shelf and move it out into the community in a way that operationalizes it and 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 allows our all of our community members, not just law enforcement, not just the intelligence folks, but everyday people in our organizations, our churches and our schools to become part of our violence prevention framework. That's that's kind of my my most current mission is being able to try to get that message out in a in a digestible way, in an animated way that that people can connect to and go, oh, this this really isn't that complicated when when. The, the student who lives next to me in my residence hall room posts some posts a thread on Instagram. I should probably let somebody know that. I should probably report that to, to the police or let my RA know that. There's some pretty easy things out there, some pretty easy observable risk factors that uh, if we all got a little bit, we were all a little bit more situationally aware of and were able to respond to, we could do much better at preventing violent incidents from occurring. Okay. I'm going to try to summarize what I've heard so far because I, I, my, my antenna's twitching. I see, I see something big coming here out of this. Um, so when I've worked with business businesses, CEOs, we always are looking for leverage. I mean, the whole idea here is how do we be more effective? How do we optimize our costs, if you will, right? So if I'm working with the VP of sales, I'm looking at forming strategic relationships that put more people on the street that I don't have to pay for. If I, I do the same thing with the supply chain, why am I manufacturing this when I can have three others do this and I can you know, focus on my core? So highly leveraged programs, right? And people, okay. So what you just, uh, what sparked me here is you go, listen, we've got the data. You called it animating or activate. How do we animate, activate the data and then you brought up culture of the community, or, or I'm thinking as you're speaking, the culture of the community. So if the community values safety and security, how do you create a strategic alliance with the community so that they're, it's a force multiplier of the police force, more eyes on the street. The key though, I think, and this is where I really wanna pick your brain here is, how does it change how if I'm seeing this data and I'm a community a city council person, how does my community work within your process to create that true force multiplier? How does that work? Yeah, well, I think that's the important second step of the process. So you know the threat assessment cycle is identify, assess, and manage. So we identify the behavior in the community that is of concern. We, we assess that it's something that we need to react to. And then there's the management piece of it. And there's a couple of different ways. It's not just law enforcement responsible for managing that. One of the things I preach when I go to organizations is to really consider implementing behavioral intervention teams. You can do it. At a, you can have a behavioral intervention team at your church or at your uh, at your business. They, they've been very successful on campuses. The K through 12 environment is, is catching on to them. The higher ed environment's been doing them for years. You get a group of people with varied expertise 
from your organization. You know, if it's a business, maybe you get a guy from uh, the sales department, you have someone from HR, you have someone from the uh, a floor manager, uh, you have your safety and security person, and then you give them some basic training in threat assessment, you know, uh, so that so that they're able to manage these cases. And then you invite your organization to when they when they see something, say something to this threat assessment team, to this behavioral intervention team that can look at as a group from each of their respective areas, areas of expertise, look at the, the variables in the equation and then apply their threat assessment training over that and begin to formulate an intervention to help this community member. And, and maybe that's in an organization referring to the employee assistance plan. Maybe it's looking at connecting this person with financial resources because that's the source of their, their problem. Maybe it's a legitimate safety and security threat and this person needs to be ex excluded from the organization or the community. But having a, having a mechanism in place where people, when they observe the behaviors of concern, can re refer that individual for review, that's kind of the next step. That's the management piece of the the process. And it doesn't necessarily have to involve law enforcement. If it rises to that level, if there's a recognized threat, then you call the police. But but organizations can begin to do this on their own with the proper training. So um, so the reason my, my antenna was twitching is something else you brought up, and that is new millennials, new generation of people are coming into the police force. And their very presence is beginning to change how you think about policing. And part of that presence is they've basically been raised with technology. Yes. With a phone in their hand. So I, start, I started thinking, if we all have phone in our hands now, why do I have to pick up a phone to call the behavioral interruption team? Why don't I, why don't I have an app for that? Is there, are, is there anything like that out there right now? Yeah, there's lots of them. Uh, you know, here here uh, at Lewis, we have we have a software uh, infrastructure. I don't know if you you name brand name products or not on your show. No, no go ahead. We're not pitching anything. But okay, I'm yeah, we use a, we use a program called Maxient here, where you know students can link into this system from uh, their they they have a My Lewis app that they run on their phone. They can push a button on their My Lewis app. It takes them into an online form. They can put in whatever information they want. They can be anonymous. They cannot be anonymous. They can hit click check boxes of behaviors of concern. They can write a little narrative and they hit submit on that. And and as soon as they do that, my phone dings, the counseling director's phone dings, the dean of students phone dings, and we immediately begin our threat assessment process on that. And, you know, for us, the first step is we all go and check our respective records. I'm going to look to see if the police department's had any contact. Counseling is checking to see if they've been in, interfacing with this person. Are there disciplinary records? What's the academic status? And then we start to get together as a group using this software. We message, we add notes, and we start to construct our response. Who's going to reach out to the student? What's that outreach going to look like? Who's the best person to do that? Do they have a connection already in the community? So the technology automates that, that whole process. Okay. Has anyone taken that data aggregation and then uh, begun to experiment with uh, machine logic? I hate using the term AI, but machine logic uh, that actually starts creating a path or no path kind of Boolean decision logic uh, to help the team you know, what would normally be a, a manual process, ding, I need to talk to someone, let's talk, 
is there something where the machine is prompting a process on that on that pathway to discovery of action or not? We're not doing that. I'm not a I'm not aware of a system that does do that. Right now it's we're relying on kind of our our human expertise to to examine these on an individual basis. Well, there's still uh, there's still going to be there's still going to be communication with the so-called machine uh, and analysis of the so-called machine, just like we still put pilots in the cockpit, even though, right? right? So there's still going to be that. But that that'd be really interesting because what we're what you're trying to teach people today is a certain level of threat assessment that they can consume and act upon. Not not yeah. everything you know, just enough to start the process, right? Yep. And if the machine can start carrying that through and making the connections, uh, it'd be kind of interesting. Yeah, I think you're onto something there. <laughs> <laughs> That's beyond my technological competence to, to work on that. So what's, what's the next step for you? You've been innovating for years. Uh, you've been writing articles. What's What's the next big thing that you're working on today? I'm I'm trying, you know, there's this book by uh, Jillian Peterson called The Violence Project, and it it's basically the manual on, on violence prevention. They did an excellent job. Academic, if you can get her on your podcast, that's the next place <laughs> you should stop. But my my mission is to kind of boil that content down to an to an hour-long presentation that that I can take out, like we talked about, to the community. And I've been trying to do that as as frequently and as regularly and in, in as diverse of environments as I, I can to get that message out to the community. And I think there are a lot of other people that are working that angle in different ways. And uh, I, I think uh, that that's really what I'm focused on right now professionally. That's awesome. Are you teaching your team how to do that too? Yeah, I've got a couple of folks on my team who are, who are pretty good trainers and pretty good presenters. So we're working with them to, to kind of preach the word. Well, I got to tell you, Mike, this has been a great conversation. It's so wonderful to have people like you and law enforcement leading the way to a new value proposition for the community and our country. And I, I again, thank you for your service. Thanks, Ron. I appreciate you giving this topic attention. This has been a great conversation.